You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, a big miss for Coinbase on revenue and earnings. Total assets plunging by 63%. My conversation with Coinbase president and COO Emily Choi right after the numbers crossed this hour. Plus, timing is everything. Just as the U.S. signs the Chips Act into law to make more chips, there are signs chip demand is on the brink of a major slowdown. We'll discuss. And would you rather subscribe to an electric car than own one? We're going to talk to the founder of Autonomy, an EV rental company that allows customers to reserve their own Tesla in just minutes. We will get to all of that in a moment, but first I want to stick with Coinbase and bring in Bloomberg's Shanali Bostic. Shanali, let's walk through the top line numbers. Miss on revenue, miss on earnings. They narrowed their user forecast. And what I thought was really interesting is the assets on the platform plunged by more than 63%. I mean, that seems pretty significant. Yeah, that drop-off in assets, that drop-off you saw in monthly uh, transacting users, and that drop-off you saw in transaction revenue, really that's a reflection of what you're seeing at the retail business, mostly there, Emily. Yeah, you heard it from Emily Choi in her conversation with you, is that a lot of retail traders are on the sidelines, and this is still such a pivotal business for Coinbase. You're seeing the stock reacting down more than 5% after hours already. Remember, this is after a steep drop-off this year. It has had quite a run-up in the last couple of days, so it's giving a little bit of that back. Uh, you are also seeing you know, a, a lot of its uh, investors really reacting here. You're seeing bonds also drop, which is really interesting. You're seeing Coinbase's then cost of borrowing rise uh, because bondholders are also losing a little bit of confidence there. Uh, the question is what is the forward outlook? The question is that the outlook for the third quarter also does not look so rosy. Those monthly transacting users and trading volumes are expected to be down again. So a little bit of that run-up we've seen in crypto prices more recently is not enough yet to offset some of the pains we're seeing in those trading businesses over at Coinbase. Now, here's a quick listen to part of what Emily Choi had to say. She didn't necessarily sugarcoat anything. She used the word rough herself. Take a listen. 
I think it was a rough quarter for most companies. In the crypto space, we, we obviously had uh, some big episodic events that happened during the, the, the quarter. And so some of those asset prices shrunk, which then impacts things like the assets on platform and other numbers. Now, when I tried to ask for her, her sort of forecast on, uh, you know, when this winter thaws, she said, you know, I, I shouldn't be prognosticating, but said that she thinks, you know, some of these are crypto industry specific factors that are driving these trends. Some of it has to do with the broader economy. When it came to hiring, yes, they did get a little over exuberant. What did you make of what she had to say? I think it's interesting. It's certainly true that a lot of other companies did feel some pain when it came to impairment charges. For example, you're getting pretty close there to a half a billion dollars in terms of impairment charges. We've seen similar things in terms of charges at MicroStrategy and the block. But what about, or, or block rather, the block is the crypto publication. But what about um, what you're seeing over there in terms of their cash burn as well? That's another half a billion dollars pretty much right there nearly. And so uh, our own Bloomberg intelligence analysts are saying that they're going to have to probably tighten the belt a little bit more when it comes to their cash burn, given some of the top line pressures you're seeing uh, when it comes to transaction revenues. All right. Well, we're going to catch that full interview with Emily Choi later this hour. Shanali, Bloomberg Shanali Basik, as always, thank you for your additional context there. Emily Choi, coming up. Meantime, the U.S. Justice Department is preparing to sue Google as soon as next month, capping years of work to build a case that it illegally dominates the digital ad market. This, according to people familiar with the matter, I want to bring in Julia Love, who just started covering Google for Bloomberg. So first of all, welcome. Um, you know, this is a case that the DOJ has been working on for years. What's been the big breakthrough? Um, so thank you so much for, for having me, Emily. And yes, as you mentioned, you know, this case is a long time in the making. Um, DOJ first started looking into these questions in 2019. Um, they brought a, uh, they brought their first um, case related to search, but now we're hearing that they're getting very close to finally bring bringing a case in the ad tech market. So what could come of this lawsuit? Mm. What are we expecting? Yeah, there's a lot at stake for Google. You know, there was a very similar um, case brought by the Texas Attorney General in which they are actually seeking to force Google to sell off parts of its ad business. Google currently plays very roles in this market. It orchestrates the market. It also um, does business with publishers and advertisers. And so, so the state of Texas is arguing that Google simply must sell off part of its business. It can't see, it can't play all those roles. And it's possible that DOJ could seek to do something similar. You know, we've spoken with Google executives. You know, I speak to Ruth Porat on the call every quarter. You know, they always talk about how they're construct constructively engaging with regulators. What's been their comment on this particular report so far. They, they haven't said much. They argue that their, um, that their role in the advertising market brings um, efficiencies to both um, publishers and advertisers. Um, but behind the scenes, my colleagues have reported that, um, that they have made settlement offers to the Justice Department that so far have not done the trick and a lawsuit seems likely. All right, Julia Love, who covers Alphabet for us, thank you so much for weighing in. We'll keep following. President Biden signed a broad competition bill into law, including $52 billion for domestic chip R&D. The bill is at the center of the administration's effort to reduce dependence on countries like Taiwan and South Korea, whose homegrown companies are leading the market. 
Meantime, Micron Technology plans to invest $40 billion through 2030 for chip manufacturing in the U.S. as part of a broader $150 billion investment strategy. But Micron CEO Sanjay Mabrota told Bloomberg earlier there could be trouble ahead for the chip sector, especially on the demand side. Due to the macroeconomic uncertainties, as well as due to high levels of inventories that customers have built across various end market segments for us, those inventories are being adjusted down, and that is what is resulting in reduced demand for us. Here to discuss Bernstein Research Senior Analyst Stacey Raskon, as well as our Bloomberg Executive Editor for Tech Technology, Tom Giles. So first of all, Tom, walk us through more of what the Micron CEO had to say. This on top of what we saw from NVIDIA this week and Intel and AMD last week. Right. The picture from the chip makers is becoming increasingly dour. Um, this morning, basically, Micron said already our lowered forecast for how revenue is going to shake out in the fiscal fourth quarter is going to be worse than we expected. It's going to be at the low end or possibly below the low end. That sent shivers across the chip, chip, chip making industry. Um, you know, he talked about demand, uh, talked about buildup of inventories. There's this question about all these PCs that we were snapping up during the pandemic. That's starting to level out. So, Stacy, what's your read on this? Is this just a you know periodic correction, or is there something more fundamental going on here? Could we be at the beginning of a recession-level collapse in chips? Well, I mean, collapse is a harsh word, but there's been a lot of worries that the very strong demand that we've been seeing over the last couple of years in the wake of COVID was not sustainable. Um, that some of it was was pulled forward as as work habits change. Anything work from home, study from home, play from home. So I elevated demand, and that can't last forever. There's also been worries that you know, in the wake of all the shortages and everything that we've been seeing, that the demand that we saw because of that was actually stronger than it looked. Like there's a phenomenon that happens when customers can't get the parts that they want in the time frame that they need them, and they they tend to order more. It's called double ordering. It's a very sort of normal. Behavior, but the problem is to the industry, they 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 never know that it's double ordering. They just they just see demand going through to, to the moon. And as the, as the actual end demand starts to lag off, and it is in some of these, especially these consumer areas, supply and demand starts to get back into balance. And then you discover how much of the actual demand profile that the customers are seeing is real and how much of it is phantom. The what the one thing that Micron said though that was a little different was they, they started pointing out inventory corrections, things like auto and industrial. These are end markets that have been holding up very well. I personally have been concerned about these kind of double ordering phenomena in, in these kind of end markets. And if it turns out that they were holding a ton of like memory inventory, like I don't know why they wouldn't be holding inventory of other parts as well. So people will potentially look at that statement as low sort of like the next like potential leg down, um, uh, especially in some of these end markets that was right now the demand in them still looks pretty strong. The timing, Tom, is just so ironic because you've got the U.S. poised to spend billions of dollars on chip manufacturing in the United States, but do we really need it? This well, was supposed to. This was supposed to be a big day of celebration for the chip industry. I listened to, to Biden in his press conference earlier today, and there was hooping and hollering and applause in the audience. It's talking about innovation and creating jobs, and at the same time, you have these companies like Intel talking about like slowing down hiring, talking about cutting back on spending. And at the same and then and this is the industry that has been lobbying 
for months to get the CHIPS Act through. When's it going to pass? When's it going to pass? And finally they got what they wanted. And it lands with a thud on the worst day possible when Micron makes this announcement a day after NVIDIA makes the announcement. But remember, what they're trying to do with the CHIPS Act is a very long-term investment. It takes years and billions of dollars to build these factories. And clearly we saw during the supply chain crisis, during the pandemic, that the U.S. has fallen behind in production of key chips, two countries that you mentioned already, Taiwan and South Korea. Stacey, what are your thoughts on this? And if there, you know, are, are, are any chip makers poised to weather this better, better than others or not? You know, I'm thinking Intel, which, as Tom mentioned, is investing a lot of money in America's heartland. They, they are, and, and we can argue whether or not Intel's actually been able to productively deploy all of the money that, they, that they're that they getting. They're going to get a lot of money, but it, you know, it doesn't like go on their balance sheet and then they can do whatever they want. They actually have to sink it into the ground and make productive investments. And given their, their near-term issues, again, they've been over-earning for a long time and they it, it's biting them now. Um, and frankly, I, I mean, even the, the forecast that they were giving like to justify these investments, my own personal opinion is that that long-term forecast that Intel had was outlandish. So I don't actually know that Intel is going to be able to deploy this stuff in a value-add manner for the industry. We won't, we won't know for years. This stuff takes years, as you said, to um, uh, to add. Now, the so general Stacey, idea by the... Oh, 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 go, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say the general idea of like the whole long-term versus the short-term. The industry goes through downturns. It, it's happening now, probably, and, and we'll see where it's... Now, that being said, like over time, we will probably need this stuff. And you sort of think about this. The industry is, is big. We did $556 billion um, in revenues last year. Maybe we go into a downturn now. But like if, if even at mid-single-digit growth over the cycle, some years up, some years down, it's a trillion-dollar industry in you know 10 years plus or minus. So I think in 10 years... We'll probably be glad, like like on a broad basis, that some of these investments are being made. Does that mean so that they're that we're going to need them now? No. So you're saying we're not going to need this stuff for ten years? It's going to be a decade before supply meets demand? It's well, I think supply is already meeting demand, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, supply near term is, is coming up and demand is coming down. But you have to remember, even if we go whole whole hog into this, you're not going to see any material amounts of capacity for years. Even Micron talked about, they said we're going to do like $40 billion. They're not even planning on bringing any of that stuff online for production until the second half of the decade. This this stuff takes years and many, many billions of dollars. And, and, and by the way, you could argue in that context, and I, I've been saying this, the $52 billion or whatever the number is, is a rounding error in the grand scheme of things. This is not really, in my opinion, going to structurally improve the amount of the percentage of capacity that is installed in the U.S. relative to the world—it's not big enough, but it is and a start. To get some of these projects started in the U.S., and so you have to start somewhere. And don't forget that in the meantime. South Korea, Taiwan, these chip makers, they're not going to slow down. Mm -hmm. They're going to keep barreling ahead with their innovation and their spending, and the U.S. is going to have to work all the harder to catch up. Very good point. Tom Giles, uh, our Bloomberg executive editor, and Stacey Raskon Bernstein. Stacey, great to have you back here on the show. Thanks for stopping by. All right, coming up, Lemonade shares popping on the back of the next-gen insurance company's earnings. We're going to talk to the CEO next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. 
Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Insurance startup Lemonade says it's on its way to profitability. Shares popped after reporting smaller than expected losses in the third quarter. Lemonade saying it can reach profitability without, quote, any further infusion of capital. Here to discuss Lemonade Chair and co-CEO Daniel Schreiber. So, Daniel, when do you get to that coveted profitability? Well, we're turning a corner right now. We've let it be known that within a matter of weeks we will see peak losses. So our losses are going to begin to edge downwards. Already in Q4, we're going to see shrinking losses. Even as our business continues to grow, we reported 77% revenue growth year on year. So we're seeing strong growth and shrinking losses. So we're very much on the path. And this is really a reflection of the business doing what it was designed to do. This is the output of many product launches, many market launches, 12,000 pushes of production software just during the course of the last year alone. And all of these investments are beginning to pay off it's very gratifying. Now, you said you've moderated spending and the pace of hiring and that you basically have enough gas in the tank, you know, not to need any additional capital and to subsist on, you know, the capital that you have until you get to that point. Um, what's your outlook if the macro environment continues to be very challenged, if we go into a recession? You know, we're fortunate um, to be working in an industry that is pretty resilient when it comes to recessions. So we are seeing green indicators flashing on our screens really across the business. Strong demand, strong unit economics, strong marketing efficiencies, strong operational efficiencies. There are a couple of areas where we're impacted by the macro. For example, cost of capital has definitely shot up, which is why we'll be spending it much more cautiously. But actually, in terms of the fundamentals of our business, insurance as a space, as an industry, is reasonably resilient. Inflation impacts us somewhat. Cost of capital would impact us if it weren't for the fact that we're already well-funded. 
But other than that, we're reasonably impervious to what's happening out there, which is a, a fortunate position to be in. Now, since the acquisition of Metro Mile, a third of the business, as I understand it, is renters. 20% of the business is cars. What sort of trends are you seeing uh, in the insurance industry, given rising inflation, given consumers under pressure, you know, when it comes to basic gas and groceries? So inflation does affect our industry and it affects the car insurance space perhaps more than others just because the supply chain impact on the car industry has been pretty profound. You take a car into a shop today to get repaired, you'll pay a lot more than you would otherwise. And we're not talking about the 9% inflation, you're talking here about 20 or 30% inflation specifically within that industry. So definitely an impact there. And in an industry where you can't raise prices willy-nilly, everything has to be approved by regulators and 50 regulators at that, you can often get timing mismatches between the time that you apply to change rates and when you can actually change those rates. And inflation does impact you that way. We do have the advantage now, having acquired Metromile, though, of being in a unique position of having a far richer, more textured, more precise data set on which to price. So the industry at large uses broad stroke proxies, gender, credit scores, marital status. Metromile has really been spending the last 10 years with precision sensors driving billions of miles so that they can price and really estimate the risk of every mile driven for every individual insured. And having inherited all of that data and now ingesting it into the Lemonade tech stack, we should be in a position to have an advantage play even in the car space, even under these relatively duress conditions that the industry is experiencing. Yeah. Now, I understand you're also exploring blockchain technology for climate change related insurance for farmers. You know, what's the status of that and the potential? of that. Yeah, it's a fabulous initiative. This is part of the Lemonade Foundation, which is a non-profit arm. So this is entirely non-profit. And we've launched the Lemonade Climate Coalition. So this is the Crypto Climate Coalition, where we're using an avalanche-based smart contract to enable subsistence farmers in Africa to insure their crops. Now, you're talking about something like $5 worth of premiums Um, over the course of a season, something like $60 of claims. At those levels, traditional insurance just cannot operate. The cost of just selling a policy, of supporting it, of then handling a claim, all of those dwarfs dwarf the kind of uh, fees that I just mentioned. But a smart contract can execute those kind of uh, insurance policies instantaneously and at zero overhead. So we're really shifting the entire policy into a smart contract where a farmer in Africa will be able to use their feature phone to buy coverage instantaneously. That will be translated into a wallet on chain, which will execute against a smart contract, which will then be parametrically driven so that if there's a climate event, they'll get paid instantaneously with no overheads. It's part of our non a profit initiative we're very proud of. Fascinating. Uh, all right, yeah. Lemonade co-CEO Daniel Schreiber, thank you. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to the markets now and shares of Tesla, one of the biggest drags on the NASDAQ 100, just after a slew of new single stock ETFs that'll amplify bets on the notoriously volatile shares hit the market. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow here with the details. Ed, take Yeah, this is one that caught my eye. We're looking at single name or single stock ETFs, but leveraged and inverse 
ETFs. And Tesla's really interesting example. Some new products on the market launched Tuesday on a day where the stock is down almost 2.5%. The whole point of a leveraged and inverse ETF is that you want to look for those outsized gains when there's movement in the stock. But there are also the risk, of course, of outsized declines. So Direction is one of those providers launching this ETF this Tuesday. You take the daily Tesla Ball 1.5x, 1.5 times shares ETF, ticker TSLL. Now, the stock was down 2.5%. That's the risk with a leveraged ETF because at 1.5 times, that meant that that ETF actually fell nearer to 5% or 4.6% during Tuesday's session. Now, if you're a bear and you think the stock's going to go down, Direction offers you a bear 1x shares ETF. TSLS is the ticker. And on a day where the stock was 2.5% lower, this inverse ETF was up two and a half percent on a one-to-one ratio. So regulators have been talking about this for about a month because it's not a new product. AXS came on to the market 30 days ago with a single name, Tesla, inverse ETF. And this is the demand that they've seen. They're offering a number of products across a number of names, but Tesla's where they're seeing trading volume and inflows. So market regulators are getting a little bit worried about this because you're making an outsized bet on a stock that could move in either direction depending on your conviction. And given what we've seen in the markets of late with volatility, I think this is an area we should keep an eye on. Him. Ed, thank you. Meantime, would you rather subscribe to a Tesla than own one? Joining me now, the founder of Autonomy, an EV rental company that allows customers to reserve their own Tesla and other electric cars in just minutes. CEO Scott Painter with me now. So, Scott, how would you describe what you do differently here than, let's say, just a typical rental car company? Well, a, a rental car is just something that's going to cost you a lot more, number one. It's a it's a good option if you're going to need a car in a city where you're just visiting for a couple of days. But flexible access to mobility is really about avoiding going into debt, and it's about making it easier, faster, and less expensive. Our belief is that one of the big barriers to mass adoption for electric vehicles is affordability. Uh, the average car payment in America today is about $650. Uh, we've got a product that gets you into a Tesla Model 3 tomorrow for $490 a month. Talk to us about your partnerships. Obviously, we know you can get Teslas, but you're also uh, working to increase the supply of other kinds of cars. What kind of inventory, or I should say options, are there? Well, we've been operating in California throughout the, uh, the first part of this year, and what we've really proved is that the unit economics and the business really does work. We've created a very robust demand list and we are now expanding into the model uh, Y and we've also today announced an order for 23,000 vehicles across 17 different automakers so we're really going to be expanding the offer uh, the offering to give customers more choice and it's going to be the entire electric vehicle buffet everything from an entry-level vehicle like uh, the Bolt EV all the way up to a Hummer EV that might cost you a little bit more we expect that our order for 23,000 vehicle is going to get filled differently by every manufacturer step one for us is to place the order, talk with each of these manufacturers about their production timetable, when we can expect this order to be filled. But we do expect our biggest customer uh, or our biggest purchase order, which is going to be with Tesla, to start being filled right away. Um, we've, we've placed an order for as many as 8,300 cars from Tesla alone. How do you finance all of these orders? I mean, you know, rental car companies, it's, it's you know, historically kind of a difficult business. Well, you know, 
fundamentally, we believe that owning an electric car is a good asset at this moment. Right now, you've got structural scarcity for electric cars. There's just simply not enough cars being made. The factory that makes used electric cars, which is what drives future value of electric cars, is the new car factory three years ago. So we're looking very closely at what gets produced, what's going into production, the announcements. Everybody has said they're going all in on electric. It's not as though General Motors and Ford and Volkswagen have said they're going to make an electric car. They've said they're going all electric. So Ford by 2026 is going to be all electric. General Motors by 2030. As these production facilities come online and these products become available to consumers, autonomy is just another way to get access. We also are, interestingly, not selling you a car. We're not lending you money. And as such, you can put this on your credit card. It is a month-to-month offering, so far less commitment. It does not show up as debt, so it leaves you with available borrowing uh, capability. So it is really modern in the sense that it's also 100% digital. You don't have to do anything offline. There's no negotiation. Everything's menu-driven. What about what gets bought? What are you seeing in your market research about consumer adoption? of electric cars. Yeah, our order is really following consumer adoption. If you look carefully at the cars that we've ordered by manufacturer, these are the cars that we feel are going to be most popular. We're ordering fewer volumes of the higher end or more expensive cars. Our median price point tends to be right around $50,000. Our primary vehicle, our launch vehicle with the Tesla Model 3, we've now expanded into the Model Y. We believe, for example, that the Model 3 is really this generation's Prius. But at $50,000, it does represent the median price point in the pack, and that allows us to deliver a $500 monthly payment. Something we'll continue to follow. Autonomy founder and CEO Scott Painter. Well, widely recognized as one of the greatest athletes of all time, Serena Williams plans to retire from tennis after playing in this month's U.S. Open. Williams, now 40, has won 23 Grand Slam titles and almost $100 million in prize money. I asked if she was thinking about retirement just a few months ago when she joined us on the show. Take a listen to what she had to say then. Every tennis player thinks about the R word as soon as they hit five years. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because tennis is so intense. It's literally 11 months out of the year. Um, But I always tell people I'm not planning for tomorrow, only in business. Well, here we are a few months later, and she has made a decision about the R word. And speaking of business. She says she's also going to focus on her venture capital firm, Serena Ventures, which mostly invests in companies started by women and people of color. I wake up every morning thinking, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to open my computer and look at decks or just talk to the company or just see how, what we're going to do today. Um, And it's something that is, I'm super passionate about. Serena Williams. All right, coming up, my exclusive conversation with the president and chief operating officer of Coinbase, what Emily Choi has to say about a quote-unquote rough quarter. She's with us next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. 
And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. On to our crypto report now. I sat down with Coinbase President and COO Emily Choi just moments after earnings crossed. It was a miss on revenue and earnings while assets on the platform plunged more than 60%. Coinbase also narrowed its user forecast. Here's what Choi had to say about the quarter. I think it was a rough quarter for most companies. In the crypto space, we, we obviously had uh, some big episodic events that happened during the, the, the quarter. And so some of those asset prices shrunk, which then impacts things like the assets on platform and other numbers. So the monthly transacting users actually beat, but according to many analysts, Coinbase is losing share, losing market share. Is that your take? And if so, what are you doing to stop the decline? So let me unpack that. I think there's different pieces to this puzzle. So one is our core retail customer is somewhat sitting on the sidelines in this type of a turbulent market. And we've seen that in past cycles. What happens is they, they want to sit it out, they want to hodl for a little bit, and then they come back on and they'll engage with, with certain features such as staking and other things. Um, we did talk about the fact that there were some episodic bankruptcies that happened this quarter. And as a result of that, you know, we were untouched by that. We have incredible risk management. Um, and we, we had zero exposure to that. But there was an aspect of it where we didn't also benefit from some of the liquidity flows that happened during the course of the quarter. And there also is a reality that during these types of cycles, you have market makers and high-frequency traders making up the bulk of activity. A lot of that activity happens offshore. And so to that extent, like we might not have participated as much as others in the ecosystem. The way that we focus on that over the longer term is we drive more international growth to make sure we participate in that upside. And we also are investing heavily in products like derivatives, where, which our users are showing a lot of demand for. So what's your take on where we are in the crypto winter? Are, are you seeing signs of you know, starting to thaw or are we still deep freeze? <laughs> I am smart enough to know not to make a prognostication <laughs> on where we are in the cycle. Um, what I can say is that Coinbase has now been through four major cycles, 10 years of operating this company. And so we just know how to run a long-term business. We know how to preserve cash. We know how to operate it so that we're investing in the long term. And that's all we're going to keep doing. How much of 
what's happening do you think is tied to the overall economy, to what the Fed is doing versus crypto industry specific factors? It's a mix and it's, it's hard to say what exactly comes from the macro, what exactly comes from the crypto winter. You know, in some cases they were intertwined because some of the macro conditions caused the run on the, the assets that, that created some of those bankruptcies. So, you know, ultimately the way that we approach that market condition is we think about how do we drive higher revenue generating activities? How do we cost cut in these types of environments? And then how do we also make sure that we have the absolute risk management in place so that we avoid any any of the contagion that happened, which is exactly what we did. You do say you're going to have limited ongoing hiring. You had a big round of layoffs back in June. Several companies have had layoffs. I know you and Brian have always talked about you're thinking about the long term, you're looking ahead uh, in the cycle. So what do you think was the miscalculation here? Mm -hmm. Where do you think things went wrong? You know, it's entirely possible that we got a little too exuberant um, as the market got really frothy. And I think that's a natural consequence. I mean, I think we're not the only company to have experienced that. What you saw then was that we took some of the earliest, swiftest, decisive action with the cuts as hard as they were. They were the right thing for the company. And so we're always going to be nimble and adjust to the market as we need to. You did do this big partnership with BlackRock. I know investors were really excited about that. Are you expecting more of these kinds of institutional partnerships and what kind of partnerships? Yeah. Emily, I have wanted to do that BlackRock partnership since the day I joined Coinbase. And to be totally honest, we wouldn't have been ready for it back when I first joined because we didn't have everything in place that we needed to in terms of the product suite and the compliance and everything that we needed. Um, And BlackRock wouldn't have been ready because their institutional customers weren't necessarily demanding crypto as a new form of asset class. It was kind of an idea. So for this to come together now, actually, during the crypto winter is such an incredible testament to where we are, where they are, where their customers are. And I, I think the most important point is it speaks to institutional customers, very traditional institutional customers wanting to get crypto asset exposure. So will we see more of these or are there other institutional partners that potential partners that you're talking to that are interested? You will see more of these and Honestly, we are the number one partner to partner with those folks, given our focus on regulation, compliance, and security of assets. Coinbase has had a bit of a back and forth with the SEC. There are still, I believe, nine tokens Coinbase uh, has listed, continues to list as tokens that the SEC claims are securities. Why? Yeah. So we have never shied away from regulation. It's part of our lifeblood. Frankly, it was counterintuitively something that we invested in from the early days of the company. So we welcome healthy, sensible regulation. In this case, the SEC has launched an inquiry about nine assets on our platform. As you know, we spend a tremendous amount of time and effort and resources classifying assets and whether we believe they fall into the security or utility space. Um, If this is an opportunity to have that dialogue again and to make sure that we agree on a sensible framework for that, we welcome it. And we're, of course, going to partner with the SEC, CFTC, and any other regulators or lawmakers on any of this. There's also this insider trading case where a former Coinbase employee has been charged. What's your relationship with the SEC at this point? And what's your comment Mm. on that particular case? We have a zero tolerance policy for front running. Um, We pride ourselves on the amount of security and uh, detection that we invest in to make sure that we can detect for front running. We worked very closely with the DOJ on this case. In fact, they publicly lauded us, which is a very unusual thing because we spent a ton of time getting them up to speed on the nuances of the case. And we'll continue to work with, with any regulators and law enforcement on making sure that we nip that activity in the bud. 
Coinbase president and COO, Emily Choi. Overtime Sports has just raised $100 million in funding to expand its leagues for the next generation of athletes. The company started out posting high school sports highlights on social media back in 2016 in an effort to build an audience of 15 to 28-year-olds who love sports. Overtime now boasts 80 channels across six platforms spanning football, basketball, soccer, and gaming. And over the last year, the company has branched out into running its own Sports leagues. I want to bring in overtime CEO Dan Porter now for more. So, Dan, I know you started out making this bet on high school, but you've evolved quite a bit since that time. And now you're focusing on sort of next generation athletes, maybe just out of high school. Talk to us about give us a snapshot of where the company is today. So today we we still have our kind of our core business where we went after the audience, you know, the average age of the kind of sports fan and season ticket holder of the big four sports is still in the 40s and 50s. And we made a big bet that we could go out and get that younger audience. And that younger audience is the core of our community. And what we did is we said, okay, we have this active community. We're on every social platform. They're super engaged with us. And let's launch our own leagues on top of that. And so we saw some opportunity in the marketplace. We saw opportunities for athlete empowerment. And we've built these leagues with kind of 17 to 19-year-old players. Some are high school age, some are out of high school. But really, it's about the audience. And I think that professional sports is incredible, uh, but every generation kind of wants its own thing spoken in its own voice. And so we've launched a league in basketball and a league in football where we think there's an opportunity to build millions and millions of fans and deliver them kind of sports in their own voice. And that's our big bet, and that's where the $100 million is going. So what's the vision to expand these leagues and also you know, potentially cash in on media rights? So really, our, our goal over the next three years is to grow audience. It's kind of an interesting thing because you become a sports fan because you have an emotional uh, attachment to a team, to your city, to anything else like that. And we've got to get out there in front of all of our tens of millions of fans and convince them that our league is the league that they want to pay attention to. And as we do that, and you know, we have already millions of followers on these leagues themselves, we want to bring on more sponsors and I think the value that all investors see in sports leagues is rights right you have Amazon and Apple you have more competitors in the market than you've ever had before and and we want to we want to build a league that the fans like but also that buyers of media rights like now the goal I know initially was to build this audience 15 to 28 year olds who love sports but aren't consumed by it the way their parents are. What does a young, healthy, sports-loving audience actually look like? So I'd say first and foremost, they probably consume it in a lot of different places. And I think that's probably true of you and me to some extent as well. There's no single platform for sports anymore. You're kind of aggregating your information. But I'd say really two things. One is they want to see athletes who kind of are like them, who they can be aspirational towards. doesn't mean that NBA or NFL athletes aren't amazing. They are. But the gap between those athletes and I think our athletes and the fan is smaller. And I'd say they want to be participants. They want to 
not just be expected to sit on the couch and watch, but they want to have input. They want to be spoken to. You know, when I talk to young fans, they tell me, like, I want to be seen. I want to be heard uh, for what I bring. And I think that that's obviously true across content and music and all aspects of culture. Like Gen Z and millennials, they want to put their stamp on it. They don't just want to consume it. And that's what we have to figure out how to continue to do as sports leagues. I know you're also working on NFTs. Of course, there's been some skepticism about how big the NFT market can actually be. What are you betting? I'm betting that NFTs are not an end in and of themselves, but they're a means to an end. And so if we can use NFTs to give our audience a chance to participate, to empower them, to activate their voice in the space, then that's that's amazing. If if we just think about it as, oh, here's another revenue stream, or we should do the same thing as everyone else, I don't think we'll realize the full potential. But really, at the core, blockchain and NFTs are about decentralized participation and activating the audience. And, and that's always at the core of what we do. So in some way, I think of NFTs the same way I think as social media, not in an okay. end of themselves, but like a platform to do more for the audience. Interesting. We'll keep watching. Overtime CEO Dan Porter, thanks for Thank you for having me. All right, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tune in on Wednesday. We're going to hear from Roblox CEO David Bazuki after their second quarter results. Shares are plunging in late trading after a miss on bookings. We're going to talk about that. Plus, what's next for the metaverse, of course. And David Sachs, one of the many people in Elon Musk's inner circle, subpoenaed by Twitter. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.